0: Welcome to the podcast of Ideas. This is a recording of the debate, Do the Right Thing, The Moral Responsibility of the Artist, from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2018 at the Barbican in London. The session is introduced by the chair, Andrew Doyle.
1: Thank you very much for joining us for this panel, which is called Do the Right Thing, The Moral Responsibility of the Artist. Um, I'm going to, just before I introduce our, our guests, I'm going to start by raising uh, an example of what we we're going to be talking about, which actually uh, came up this week, um, you find that every week there's a news item uh, relating to, to this topic. And I'm thinking of um, an interview with Daisy Goodwin uh, for the BBC. Daisy Goodwin is a screenwriter. And she was talking about the success of recent TV shows such as Bodyguard and Killing Eve. And the point that she made was actually both of these shows have very, very strong female leads. It's very sort of female-centred um, drama. But she was saying that this was airbrushing reality because it is unrealistic to pretend on television that women and men are treated equally. In other words, we've had a lot of people complaining that there aren't sufficient female leads or powerful female role models on TV. But now someone is saying, actually, by doing that... Uh, it's effectively a kind of misogynistic uh, misrepresentation of reality, which le- does leave us in the, in the situation of, well, how do we win then? What, what, what do we do? And I'm very interested that this debate is coming up again and again. Of course, it has always happened. Every single generation uh, has to approach this idea of morality and, and, and the intersection of, of morality and art. I mean, you can go back to the ancient Greeks who felt that actually there's a responsibility to represent immorality uh, as a means to, to purge yourself of any negative emotions. The, the concept of catharsis um, and then you've got the idea of, of, of course, uh, um, such as the D.H. Lawrence case that actually, you know, by representing something, uh, the servants and the women might become corrupt. Um, so I'm interested in this and particularly at the moment uh, with the rise of identity politics, um, we are in that kind of time when, when this is very much at the forefront of the culture wars. So I thought it'd be really interesting to get a, a range of views on the panel. I hope that's what we've achieved. Uh, but I'd also really urge you in the audience to, to pipe up and say what you think. Um, I'm going to be coming out to the audience a number of times, uh, and I do want you to be, um, not rude, but combative. You know, say what you think, uh, address what the people are saying here, uh, and we'll all have a lovely, healthy, healthy debate. Um, And I can go back to uh, a quotation which I I put into the blurb, which was from Oscar Wilde, which is, there is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly-written. That is all." Now, this is something that I think we're we're not seeing at the moment with this culture of calling out artists for, partly for the issue of representation and and diversity, but also for sending the right message. Um, For instance, the actor Vincent D'Onofrio recently tweeted to say, I've been offered a big Hollywood role as a racist. Should I be playing a racist in the current climate? (laughs) Uh, And, of course, he got bombarded with various answers um, uh, and then deleted the tweet. Um, uh, so I'm interested in in these ideas there's sort of a few strands here Uh, one of the strands is about um, do works of art really have the power to influence morality and therefore is there a responsibility from a creative standpoint uh, also, should art be commissioned or programmed on the basis of its morality, uh, and if so, what are the implications for artists? We've got a fantastic panel here of all sort of. Uh, we're covering a lot of um, areas of, the, of various industries here. So, John Britton. I'm going to go through them in the order in which they're going to speak. John Britton, who is a, a staff writer on Netflix's series The Crown. He's also a, a playwright uh, and a comedy writer and director. Uh, Then James uh, James Dreyfus, I think. Oh, no, he's going to speak last. James is going to speak last, but he's an award-winning film, TV and theatre actor. Uh, We've got Kimberly McIntosh here, who is a writer and a policy officer at the Runnymede Trust. And Mo Lovett, who is a writer and researcher who specialises in the arts and culture. And then here to my right is Samir Rahim, who is managing director of Prospect uh, magazine. Uh, So we've got a a lovely range here. So... um, what we'll do is each person is going to address you for a few minutes and give you their general sense of where they stand on these issues, um, and then we'll I'll bring it out to the audience and we'll come back to the panel and we'll do that a few times, and then we'll all go go away. Okay. Did you say three minutes? Uh, no, no, five minutes. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, five minutes. Five minutes. Um,
2: okay. We'll start with uh, with
1: John Britton. Uh,
2: thank you very much. Um, so it's kind of uh, just listening to that, sort of two words really uh, cro- um, sort of popped out for me. One of them is win. How do we win? And the other is war. Um, and it's a sort of particular way of framing this whole question. Um, uh, I might speak for slightly longer than five minutes. I've sort of stepped in uh, a bit late, and um, sort, of, sort of shaking their head incredibly disapprovingly at that. Um, <laughs> um, um, I will not let my rights to speak to be trampled on by time limits. Um, Look, one of the worst feelings you can have as a writer, in my experience, is when someone tells you you've got something wrong. Uh, whether you've been insensitive or you've made an inference that you didn't mean to, or uh, that in some way your work is being read in a manner that you didn't intend. Uh, it's really horrible, it's uncomfortable, uh, and you, you feel like a dick. Um, and More and more, as artists and entertainers, we're becoming aware that certain things that we may never really have thought about before uh, are actually potentially harmful. Um, I would ask, is that awareness a bad thing? Because the way I often see this debate being framed is as a zero sum game. On the one hand, absolute artistic freedom. No compromises. Writers can write whatever they want, however they want, and any questioning of that is an attack on all artists. On the other hand, total responsibility. You better not get anything wrong. Bearing in mind what's wrong this week may not have been wrong last week. You may not know that, but if you do, you're cancelled. Whenever I'm arrogant enough to teach writing, um, I always say I'm more interested in asking what art can do, rather than what art should do. Should art be purely concerned with aesthetics, as Oscar Wilde said? Should art be purely concerned with activism, or can it be both, or either, or neither? Because I'd argue that most of us sit somewhere in between the two poles, working out how to try and balance artistic freedom with the responsibility that comes from having a platform to tell stories. Because, you know, while we can absolutely debate how media affects uh, people, it's very hard to deny that art does have an effect. Why else would we do it? Uh, in my lifetime, many films and TV shows such as Philadelphia, Queerist by Doctor Who, have contributed to a, a more tolerant society for LGBTQ people. On the flip side, the comedian Stephen K. Amos, I remember him talking about being called racist names in the playground that the other kids learned from the sitcom Love Thy Name. It's also hard to deny that artists historically have been predominantly white, middle-class and male, and it still is. Hello. Um, (laughs) But um, women, people of colour, disabled people, the working class, the LGBT community, and many, many others are underrepresented, both in front of and behind the scenes. And because of that, um, the way they are represented, and indeed whether or not they are given a platform to represent themselves and their own diverse points of view, Uh, is really important can have a disproportionate effect both on their own lives and the lives of people watching. So as an artist, I do think that I have a moral responsibility to think long and hard about what statements I'm making, what questions I'm posing, the grey areas I'm leaving to be interpreted, and whether or not I'm the best person to be telling that story in the first place. Um, But asking that question doesn't necessarily make the art worse. In fact, it can make it better. we may not even choose to change our approach at all. Having grappled with those questions, uh, we may listen to them and go, "Actually, no, I disagree." But we'll be making an informed decision. Think of it as peer review. You know that the voices asking these questions haven't come out of nowhere. You know, um, many of them have just never been given a platform before. And as artists of any background, having access to those different perspectives can help all of us to tell better stories, more original stories. Because when the obvious shortcuts are questioned. Maybe only then will we find the more picturesque scene equipped. Um, on the other hand, I came of age politically in the mid 2000s. The play Bezhti had been protested and cancelled at the Bowman Rep. The producers of Jerry's Money of the Opera were almost prosecuted for blasphemy. So I'm inherently just very cautious about the notion of imposing my own moral values onto other people's artistic practices. Uh, art comes in all shapes and sizes, and I won't pretend that there haven't been instances where I felt that these arguments. Have been misapplied or taken to an extreme, or like Andrew says, are applied inconsistently. However, all virtues carried to an excess become a vice, and it's a logical fallacy to suggest that just because some extreme examples are flawed, it follows that the opposite extreme must be true. You know, the way we frame this question is implicitly a kind of negative thing, as if a sense of moral responsibility is a gateway drug to a slippery slope that ends with. Gulags and mixed metaphors. But, I think as artists we can provoke, we can push boundaries, we can ask difficult questions, we can shock, we can upset, we can offend, and at the same time have a consideration for how we're doing it. Who we're doing it with, who we're presenting it to, the possible harmful consequences of that, and indeed, who bears the brunt of those consequences. Ultimately, this does come down, as Andrew says, to freedom versus responsibility. There are no clean and perfect solutions in that debate. It's scary, it's exciting, and crucially, it's ongoing. And one side should not win, because I believe it's the tension between those two things, that negotiation, that leads to great art. So I, I sit here now as someone um, whose plays have been accused on occasion of being been problematic. I have had these tense conversations. I have been made aware that in some way my work was being read in a manner I didn't intend. And it's horrible. It's uncomfortable you feel like it did. Um, and sometimes, yes, I've changed that work, and sometimes I haven't, and I think that it's my right to make that decision about whether or not to do that. But I would argue that as a writer, my work has been enriched by having those questions asked, not damaged. Uh, because when someone points out a potential problem in your work, there are three possible responses. One, you can think about it, consider it, and decide to change it. Two, you can think about it, consider it, and decide, actually, no, on balance, I'm happy to leave it as it is. Or three, you can say, stop infringing on my artistic freedom, I can write whatever I want. And the thing is, only one of those responses involves not thinking. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks very much John. I should point out I should have mentioned that John has actually stepped in at the last minute because we had we had uh, had to replace somebody. So that's why I've given him some leeway with the time. I'm gonna be a bit more militant with everyone else. Um so uh
3: Kim. Right, hi everyone, and thank you for having me. So I'm Kim and I do research on race and inequality for a living and I write about it and talk about it in public. So I annoy lots of people, I'm accused of getting it wrong all the time. And I get weird emails about people complaining about their bins and their neighbours and all kinds of things that you wouldn't think would come from writing about racism and inequality. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to pick up on some of the points that um, John mentioned, actually, particularly the disproportionate impact on others when people are creating their work. So, when we're talking about art, and I'm talking about it in all of its forms because I'm not an arts snob, so writing, visual, all of it, I think it is disingenuous to say. That it doesn't have an important impact um, on society, on our beliefs and on our values. So we had bodyguard mentioned already, um, and that resulted in someone who wears a hijab being um, getting verbal abuse, having Nardia shouted at her on a train, um, which is very unpleasant for her. But equally, on a more positive note, the storyline on the arches, on domestic violence, saw a twenty percent increase in calls to women's aid. But I think to say that art has no impact on the way that we think the way that we feel and the way people act um, is untrue, even to the point where literally last week on Tinder someone's profile said Wakanda forever, um, noting that he is down for the cause and that he's watched Black Panther. So in every aspect of our lives, culture and art is impacting the way that we think, the way that we feel and the way that we act. And for us minorities, art is a really important medium to tell stories, because by nature of being minorities, there's not that many of us. um, And that's fine, but what it does mean is that there are lots and lots of people in the country who have never met anyone like us. So the only thing that they have, the only thing that they're left with, are stories. So when these stories are told badly, when they pathologize us, you're going to get dragged on Twitter by us, because that might be the only story that we have this year. and it makes people able to connect um, with things that have nothing to do with their lives. Like I've had never experienced genocide, um, but I've been watching Black Earth Rising. I don't know who else has. Watching Hotel Rwanda and reading books on the issue has made me at least empathise and understand. But not fully, but at least try and connect with what that would be like. And try and campaign and make sure that that never happens again. But I don't think all art has to be overtly political, or political in any sense, You don't have to wash your hands when you go to the toilet, but I think it's better for society at large that most people do. And the reason that most people do it is because it benefits us all, um, but other people do it because of the fear of social sanction. Um, And I think people being criticised for what they make and the impact it has on others isn't a bad thing. But it can go to extremes. And um, I actually noticed a debate that you did on Sky, Andrew, recently, um, which you really did very well, by the way. Um, <laughs> I didn't agree with everything that you said, but um, with a lot of the gist of it, but I think there's something more to unpack behind it. Um, so Andrew was commenting on um, a poem by Kipling, that at the University of Manchester Students' Union, someone would come in in the night and papered over it um, with a poem by Maya Andrew. Um, and this is seen as... An attack on free speech, um, or trying to not put artists in the context of their time. But I can't speak for what drove them to act in that way, um, but I can speculate. Um, and what I actually think is that the people that did this don't think that Kipling has no talent with the written word and should never be spoken of again. But what they actually think is that he maybe shouldn't be venerated in this way, and to put him fully into the context of his time, we would see him for the good and the bad. So Orwell um, referred to Kipling as morally insensitive and aesthetically, aesthetically disgusting. And so, if we're putting him in the context of his time fully, I think we'd acknowledge that yes, colonialism, empire, the white man's burden. Um, he wasn't the only person to be thinking that at the time. But equally, people that we venerate, like Orwell, saw him as an outlier, as extreme, um, as insensitive. And so, if we're we don't want to shut down the conversation about artists and about art, but we want to fully put them in the context of their time. So I think it is difficult when we see people as heroes, and we love what they've made, to have to reevaluate the impact that they've had. And we see the consequence of that in a real way. On our world stage, we have Boris running around Myanmar, humming um, under, under his breath um, to the words of Kipling, which is extremely offensive and idiotic. Um, And I think if we had more honest conversations um, about Kipling and about his views, as well as his art, how it influenced his art, um, whilst not saying that it has no value, it would be a benefit to all of us. And lastly, I want to pick up on the point about access and representation. Because I think a lot of these debates, I think the papering over of if, is also driven um, by a desire to be seen. So if I learn, about Maya Angelou and Kipling, about James Baldwin and George Orwell, about Lord Palmerston and Paul Stevenson, um, then maybe I'd be able to contextualise all art fairly. And I also don't think it's fair to expect everyone to respond to art in the same way. So it's always going to be more difficult for me to venerate someone like Kipling um, than it might be for a white British person potentially, and I think that's okay, and I don't think it means that we should never talk or speak of clipping again, but I think we need to understand that not everyone is going to value it in the same way, and for some people it might be offensive to them. But I think this debate, we want to end it, um, then we need to see, the only moral obligation that we really do have is to make the art industry and all of its forms more accessible to everyone, so that we have better stories. So we have more working class stories, stories about black and Asian people, stories about disabled people, and stories about women. And then I think the more extreme sides of the debate, the papering over, the protesting outside of galleries until the work is shut down, the constant op-eds. We'd start to see a lot less of them if we had equal access to telling the stories that represent us all. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you, Kim. Uh, let's move on. Um, Mo?
3: Yes.
4: Um, so, uh, John mentioned something um, which was interesting because I was going to centre my speech around this and change my mind, so I'll bring it back in a little bit. And this was the idea that um, if we ask artists to be morally responsible, they're suddenly making an attack on all, all artists and people start uh, screaming about freedom of expression. Do they? It's a very long time since I've heard people screaming about freedom of expression, I work in the art sector. And increasingly, I hear um, the argument that the um, artist needs to take moral responsibility for his art. Um, So my first question to you is, who is defending freedom of expression? Um, I'm going to try. And I'm going to hopefully change John's mind um, that I haven't thought about this and that it's an unthinking response. (laughs) (laughs) So as we've heard, art can be a powerful thing. Words, images, stories, music. They can stir great emotions in us and they can make us think about the world from very many different perspectives. And art is powerful because it resonates with us. And the more it resonates, the more powerful it is. So what I'm seeing here is that the essence of art isn't just in the artistic production itself, the artefact or the TV programme or whatever. The essence of art is in the relationship between the artist, whatever he or she produces, and the audience. So when we ask the artist to take moral responsibility for his or her art, what we're actually doing is asking them to take responsibility for the way in which the art will be received by an audience. And obviously, they can't do that. You know, the way um, comedians sit and wait for their reviews at the Edinburgh Festival, we know you don't know how your art's going to go down. So without very much precision can we know what every single member of an audience and how they'll react to work? But of course, as we've heard, artists can make a guess at an audience reaction. Art is partly a communicative process. And in most art forms, but especially narrative ones, it's very rare that an artist doesn't consider a communicative process in the message that they're sending out. And they can, unless they're a complete recluse, of course, be aware of public sensitivities and they can avoid offending people. But I don't think they should. This is why. Partly because some of the best art is that which offends us, which shakes us up a bit and makes us question things we thought we were sure about. And partly because it's a bad idea to ask artists to think in terms of painting a positive picture of the world, or even partly positive, or about certain groups of people in the world, because they're frightened that it might offend or cause moral outrage. Because that's not art, it's it's an advertisement for the good life. So, okay, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. But... The idea of asking an artist to take responsibility for the way an audience or his art will be received is not asking them to be moral. It's asking them to express correct sentiment, which has absolutely nothing to do with the originality and flair of artistic expression. In fact, you could argue that expressing correct sentiment is the opposite of being moral. In fact, it might be acting in accordance with... uh, not in accordance with your own conscience, just because you don't want to offend. But the thing that does offend people a lot is this idea of negative stereotypes. So funny, should mention The Bodyguard. (laughs) Um, I'm about to, too. Because when I watched The Bodyguard recently, um, maybe I'm just naive, but I really, genuinely did not think of the Nadia character as being a negative stereotype of a Muslim woman. That idea just didn't resonate with me. It's because I'm so lovely, you see. (laughs) That's why. Um, But the thing is, I wasn't even really thinking about it in those terms, because I'd entered the world of that drama. I'd suspended my disbelief, and I was just swept along with the story. I also do wonder about somebody who's trying to blow up a, a conservative Home uh, office minister, but there we go. Um, so I would argue that that's what most of us do. We enter the reality of the world that the artist has painted for us. We suspend our disbelief, and then at the end of the day, we switch off the TV, or we leave the theatre, and we go back to reality. We know that it's fiction. The ideas, even the world of the story, it might live in our, in our memory for a long time, years even, but actually it's the totality of the art that has left the impression on us. If you like, it's the experience that it gave us. So we could argue that if a neg- negative stereotype has a resonance with people in society, that maybe it's the responsibility of society to work out you know, where those negative stereotypes come from, not from the artist itself. Um, But I'm going to argue more than that, because what happens, I think, is when we start trying to uh, deconstruct art, when we start looking for potential negatives, then actually we're not thinking of the artistic experience in its entirety. The act of deconstruction is not the same as the act of experiencing art. They're two separate things, opposites almost. One is asking us to enter a world of fiction and to accept its truth within that world. The other is asking us to take elements, to chop it up, to deconstruct it of that fictional world in isolation from the whole picture of that piece of art and from real life as well. And once we do start deconstructing, we can begin to see things wanting. And we can make assumptions on behalf of our audience about how we think they will experience the piece. And that's a pretty big assumption, actually, patronising even. Because artistically, we actively need stereotypes. They're a narrative shortcut. We can't give every character in a piece a detailed backstory. If Nadia had been a Danish trans woman, for instance, we would have had to give her a pretty good backstory to understand why she did what she did. We accept some shortcuts. It doesn't mean that we think all Muslim women are terrorists. So, and the other thing is, as well, it's a little bit selective, this um, who we decide is a negative stereotype. I don't know if anybody saw uh, Sasha Baron-Chorne's Cohen's is America? Um, what do you think of tra- Trump supporters? Depending on your moral view, you could say that that was a very effective satire that he did on some of those um, gun-toting uh, people in the south of America, or you could actually say it was taking the piss out of some of the most vulnerable people in society. It depends on your morality. So to sum up, when we call for the artist to take some sort of moral responsibility, I think we're doing three things. We're underestimating the ability of people to distinguish between life and art. Secondly, we're overestimating the power of art to shape us, rather than simply resonate within a whole range of complex life experiences. And finally, when we're asking the artist to take um, on moral responsibility we're asking him or her to take on our moral responsibility as an audience so I don't think artists should be censors at all I don't even think we should be asking the artist to self-centre either and by asking the artist to be morally responsible for us I think we're asking them to be our moral guardians and quite frankly with artists like Bono and Kanye West in the world, <laughs> do we really want those artists to be our moral guardians Thank you Mo.
1: Thank
5: you. We'll um, so I'll start with the Oscar Wilde quote. Um, there is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. Books are well-written or badly written. Um, it's a typical Oscar Wilde quote because once you unpack it, the meaning of it isn't quite as clear as it seems, first of all. So there's a lot that's hidden in the word well-written. What do we define as being well-written and what do we find as being immoral or moral? Most of us will know Oscar Wilde's plays, um, incredibly funny, witty, um, satirical in many ways. Um, they take as their target often the mores of sort of late Victorian society. He's playing with his audience, he, he has a target. You laugh at the characters um, when they say things that are ridiculous because there's a sort of satirical element to it. Um, therefore, there is a kind of moral element to it, if you see what I mean. Andrew, you're a comedian. You'll know that um, humour requires us to have Have targets. So there is always a moral element in whatever you do. I'm also interested in the sort of smoothness of that phrase and how it sort of trips off the tongue. It reminded me of the picture of Dorian Gray, Wilde's novel, and uh, Lord Henry, who starts off the novel with these wonderful aphorisms, very much like the ones that Wilde himself came came up with. And of course, by the end of that book, uh, Dorian Gray is totally corrupted. Um, the picture we all know about, and in a way, it turns into a kind of Victorian melodrama. The power of that work, that novel, was because um, it draws its strength from the fact that uh, there was a destructive element within Wilde himself, which he projected then into a character who gradually destroys and corrupts everything that is around him. That's basically to set up to say that to say that. Um, any work of art, even, even one uh, as, as, as by such a paradoxical figure and as Oscar Wilde, is sort of free from morality as such is, is not really true. Its effect upon us wouldn't be powerful at all if it didn't have some claim on us. And that means if it wasn't dramatising a kind of situation that we could perhaps identify with. So with Dorian Gray, the two main figures that we, we sort of still uh, remember, the picture, the disintegrating picture... Uh, But we also remember all the wonderful phrases that Lord Henry comes out with and all the aphorisms um, which are sort of devilishly attractive. Again, it's that sense of attracting, being attracted to something that is um, 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 unpleasant but uh, also um, sort of um, wickedly attractive in its own way. Fast forwarding, yesterday I happened to be in a SOAS University uh, common room for various reasons. I was visiting the library. Um, and they have, uh, speaking about university murals, they have uh, a mural there, or they did have, of the Dominican-American author Juno Diaz. Some of you will be uh, familiar with him. Um, it's the first time I've been in the, the, the common room for a while, and that actually um, there's been some controversy over him in the last year. Um, he has been accused of, and I've got to choose my words carefully, um, inappropriate uh, behavior with women, um, cheating on his girlfriend, um, things that he's, he has accepted, um, I think. And um, somebody had papered over the mural and it had Me Too written on it and it also had um, Believe the Abused. It's quite a complicated issue in some ways because um, Juno Diaz himself has talked about and written quite movingly how he himself had been abused um, as a child. And um, he's also talked about his own behavior. Um, as being sort of unacceptable or something that he regrets with regard to to women. I'm not going to get into the details of exactly what the case is, but um, he is a a novelist, a very, very good novelist, and one who, throughout his work, has explored what it means to be a Dominican-American man with the pressure of the sort of macho, um, seducer-style culture that goes with it. His um, first novel, which is called The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, Oscar Wilde, the character, is a a young boy who's in fact uh, a big fan of Oscar Wilde. There is a link there somewhere. Um, And um, he uh, uh, is learning the stories of his parents who grew up in, um, in, uh, and relatives grew up in Dominica under a terrible dictator called Trujillo, who um, would essentially just take women and, uh, and, and rape them and was just, you know, an absolutely appalling uh, figure. And Oscar, wow, this child figure, is the opposite of that. He's a sort of utter innocent. He's unable to sort of... He couldn't talk to a woman, let alone seduce her. He's the sort of ideal of... A kind of alternate ideal of what um, um, Gino Diaz is talking about, an alternative model, maybe, for sort of uh, Dominican masculinity. So he's obviously exploring in those two extremes something that he obviously we can read into it, feels within himself as a sort of balance or or embarrassment in some way. So in a way, his personal behavior, when we learn about it, does it mean that we shouldn't read the book? No, I don't think it does mean that, but I think it means that we can read the book with further levels of knowledge and understanding of where the author is actually coming from. Why does he write the character who is the... um, appalling seducer dictator so well well of course he's had to identify with him in some way and we can make links and connections Um, he's also written a short story collection which explores a character quite like himself who um, is adulterous and all the rest of it so when we're looking at a work of art we can judge it um, uh, on its moral uh, basis but not not on a sort of simplistic level um, and we can also look at the way an author's biography, but that's why we read biographies, and we can read some, to some extent into um, uh, 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 the work, um, the life of uh, the writer and their own uh, personal behaviour. Um, I would say it's fair enough for someone to sort of uh, label Juno Diaz with a Me Too slogan. Um, I think he probably has some quite serious questions that he needs to answer to people in his in his private life, Um, when it comes down to it, though, the work explores these issues, and it's kind of hiding in plain sight, really. Um, Just one, final thing: talking about um, Kipling. Kim Kim mentioned um, somebody plastering over If. I I happen to be a a big fan of Kipling. Uh, The writer, I think, is a wonderful writer. Plain Tales from the Hills, Um, Kim, something of myself. I think they're um, books which don't give a view... Uh, a simplistic view of, of what imperial life is, um, was in India, rather. Um, you know, he's a, he's a, he, Kipling himself grew up speaking Hindustani as his first language, and then felt terribly wrenched away from it when he was sent to his uh, public school, boarding school. Um, and he always had a sort of love for India. And that was sort of balanced by the fact that he also was an imperialist. So again, things aren't really as simple as they seem. As for if the poem, um, I think... Um, Alan Partridge's favourite poem, I think. It's sort of, if you do X, Y, Z, then Bob's your uncle. So, uh, I think is the quote. So, I don't really have any uh, worries about if being removed from anywhere. Thank you very much.
1: (laughs)
6: Uh, And finally, James. Uh, Hello. Uh, My name is James. Um, I... I didn't watch the Bodyguard, so I'm afraid I can't can't comment on Nadia or anyone else. Um, uh, The moral responsibility of the artist, yes. Well, I'm an actor, so um, I'm not quite sure what our moral responsibilities. I'm going to just read one of my favourite quotes, just for the sake of the fact that it is one of my favourite quotes, Um, and it's from um, with Nell and I. I happen to think the cauliflower more beautiful than the rose. Do you grow geraniums? Oh, you little traitors. Flowers are essentially tarts. Prostitutes to the bees. <laughs> um, the tenuous link uh, to that <laughs> is, is, is... That's basically what actors are. Um, uh, LAUGHTER uh, <laughs> we, we have someone write for us, we have someone direct us, uh, so the only choice we make is whether to um, accept the job, accept the money, which we usually do, because they're both in short supply, uh, and the way you play the part, but even that is uh, very much out of your hands, you, we are the lowest rung, rung on the ladder I'm, I'm only bringing this up because I'm talking purely from my standpoint now um, I, I'm not going to have an opinion on the moral responsibility of a painter or a cartoonist or anyone else I mean, I, we, we really are the um, we're told what to do, where to go so it's an interesting question of what is the actor's moral responsibility um, not sure we have one <laughs> Thank you.
1: Great. Um, all very, very interesting points of view. Um, so, uh, and I think some, some things have been raised there that I'd I'd, I'd really like to uh, to get to grips with. Um, I mean, I suppose in particular when John was talking about the the, the lack of thought that might go into into certain pers- perspectives, and actually. Um, Just to give you some context, um, Kim mentioned the Sky News debate that I I was involved in uh, and I suppose uh, part of the point that I was trying to make is the the lack of thought that had gone into the protest, that there was a lack of complexity um, and as as, um, as, uh, Samir pointed out, uh, it's actually very complicated, uh, Kipling's past, in terms of his um, support for imperialism uh, weighed, weighed against his love of India. So there is all that to consider. And my concern with the protesters, Kipling, was actually that they hadn't thought about it. The statements that they made were so reductive and so simplistic, and just saying he's a racist and we don't believe that stuff anymore. I mean, it was literally that basic... And so, therefore, it's not an engagement with the art, it's just vandalism, it's philistinism, and that was my concern. And, but I think what, Kim's raising a very important point about representation, and I think we, we, should, we should talk about that. Why, why wasn't the Maya Angelou poem chosen, for, for instance? So that's another very interesting thing. Um, there's a lot of talk about the bodyguard as well, which, I, I, again, I, ha- I haven't seen. And we've actually, I've just realised we've given a massive spoiler about who the villain is yeah. at the end. So I'm, <laughs> I, I, I really do apologise uh, uh, for that. But listen, what I'd like to do, because so many interesting points there, uh, and I'd really like to open it out to you guys, and what I'd like to do is take, say, three or four points, come back, and whoever would like to chip in and address those, uh, that would be great, and I'll do that uh, a few times. So um, if you could keep your questions relatively brief... So it's not a sort of dissertation, it's, it's something we can get to the nub of quite quickly. If I could start with this gentleman down here, we've got a roving mic here. Thank well,
7: I'll you. put my books away then. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you. Yeah, so uh, from, from the actor's uh, point of view, I think that maybe because, uh, you know, you, we are, as you say, uh, very low on the ladder in terms of artistic responsibility, um, I think it's generally accepted that what you represent on the screen is not who you are in life. Do we feel like maybe that distinction is not made as much in other art forms? For instance, if you're writing, uh, if you know, in Kipling's novels, it's seen as him making a grand statement about what you know, India might be like, as opposed to just his view of the place. Do we feel like maybe that distinction is not made enough?
1: Thank you very much, thank you. Uh, could I just
5: go
3: to uh, this lady here? Um. Hi, I was just wondering in response to the kind of question of do artists have a moral responsibility, do we as consumers of art have a moral responsibility and in today's kind of cancelled culture online, can we morally justify separating art from the artists? Uh,
1: thank you. Uh, could we just go to this lady down here? Uh,
3: thank you, I try to be quick. Um, So the
8: idea of the moral responsibility of the artist always invokes me the the most fundamental book, the Klaus Mann book, Mephisto. So I'm German, I have to mention Nazis, that's my job. So, you know, (laughs) uh, because his excuse... You know, it's a whole novel by Klaus Mann, you should read it, um, about the moral responsibility of the real actor Gustav Gründgens, who um, was supported by the Nazi regime. And his excuse was... um, I'm just an actor, yeah. So I can, I, I can, I don't have to, um, you know, with his colleagues flee the country. I don't have to protest against this. I can just be an actor. And so his philosophy was to change the system from within, to tell the good stories. And of course, this didn't work. This is not how he was moral. So how to be moral as an artist if you, if being within the system is in itself immoral?
1: Great. Thank you. Can I take? the guy with the glasses here. He's standing up.
9: Thank you. Thank you. Um, the think point to Samir, uh, really. Um, it would have been impossible to Oscar Wilde to write The Picture of and Gray without, without absorbing elements of the Victorian morality he was kicking against. That's not the same thing as a, a writer pandering to fashionable uh, sort of politically correct views, is it? I mean, is that not the difference between an artist and a commercial hack or somebody who thinks he's an artist? Um, the other point is, who is going to decide uh, what's good for us and what isn't? I mean, Oscar Wilde in his, was cross-examined by Sir Edward Carson on the picture of Dorian Grove. It was used against him as evidence in the trial he took against uh, the Marquis of Queensbury. And uh, so Edward Carson didn't really think Oscar Wilde was a bad person or a bad artist at all. He, he was just doing his job. So, you know, what, what is the context of it as well when somebody's saying, is this good or bad art? Or what are the responsibilities of the artist involved?
1: Thank you. And we'll just take one more right at the back, the guy standing right at the back, and then we, don't worry, I'll get to other people who've got their hands up, because we're going to come back to you, so don't you worry, just take it to one more and then we'll come back to the
10: panel. Yeah, thank you. Uh, just to hit on something that the lady in the, uh, well, the white lady uh, was saying about, uh, <laughs> How very I mean, nice we can say it here, why not, just get it out. Uh, but th- I think you alluded to the fact that some of this stuff is actually immoral. And I, I think it's immoral to break people down into their race and their gender and their sexual preferences. And I encourage everybody to look up the BBC's Diversity and Inclusion. Um, I think it's the 2016 to 2020 guidelines. It's a PDF. And it's, uh, it's like Mangala with a smile. People are broken down into percentages. you know, And it's all skin color, disability. And this is actually immoral. And I think it's one thing that would be moral is to ridicule this line of thinking until people are regarded as individuals again. Rock and roll. Oh, last thing. Um... You said something, the lady who is a person of color, um, that things can be taken... <laughs> a, a black lady. <laughs> um, that these things can be taken out of hand. I think you alluded to the, the identity polish. You know, they can be taken out of hand. But I think the actual phrase is they, they have been taken out of hand. Women have penises. Uh, Islam is not a religion, it's a race. This is madness. And I think we should fight back against that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, lots to think about there. So we'll
1: bring it back to the panel... Um, if we, I suppose we could just start, I, I, I think something was addressed to you, Samir, quite yeah. explicitly. Would you like to, uh, to start? And if
5: anyone on the panel just wants to address any, you don't have to address everything, is what I'm saying. The funny thing is, is that when it came to Dorian Gray, Wilde um, said lots of different things about it. And he wrote letters to magazines saying that um, there's absolutely no sort of Um, ethical or moral content to this book it's a poisonous book Um, and then he wrote later for the same magazine saying, I'm just going to get the quote right "The, the public will find that Dorian Gray is a story with a moral and the moral is this all excess as well as all renunciation brings its own punishment all excess as well as all renunciation brings its own punishment. So again, it's what I was talking about is the sense of there is no simplistic Victorian morality. And by the way, Victorian morality was quite a complicated thing. It wasn't just a sort of simple thing that we, perhaps a cliched view that we look at it as. That idea that um, the person who goes to excess is punished, but the person who renounces everything is also punished because they haven't experienced or had the sort of um, fiendish delights that Dorian Gray ultimately does. The book is still read now by people not because it offers something, uh, a solution to anything. Um, it offers a dramatisation of a human problem. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Um, if,
1: Kim, did you want to come back on, on anything in particular? Um, sure, a
3: couple of things. Um, in terms of Kipping, when he was just writing a novel and what he felt. Um, I think that's fine. Um, he may have been... I you know, also agree with Mo's point that we can't blame someone like Kipling and his work for wider political um, decisions being made at the time um, but equally we need to consider that there were also other people at that time that thought that his work even for the time was disgraceful and abhorrent and quite extreme so it's just about examining work in context from all of the viewpoints that existed at that time but not to say that Kipling wasn't entitled to write a novel about what he felt at that time and that it should be banned um, or anything extreme like that. Um, Immorality in the BBC, measuring um, race and identity and gender and everything else. Um, I've read the Charter because, yeah, it's what I do. I have to read that kind of stuff. Um, I just think they are measuring a reality. Unfortunately, identities do exist at the moment. I hope that we move forward to a world where that isn't the case. But until that's our reality, which it does not, we have 44% of people in Britain believe that um, certain races are born harder working than others and that's from last year, um, a very reputable social survey um, and you can do European comparisons and it's not a great look and I think until we live in a society where people don't believe those things about people and they don't impact the way um, people employ others because that implicitly is something that they believe, um, then BBC can stop measuring identity. stop measuring people in terms of race and gender, stop setting targets to try and improve representation. But we're not there yet. And when we live in that society, it's going to be fantastic for all of us. Um, but
1: we don't live there yet. I, I wonder if um, anyone else on the panel wants to pick up on that particular point about the idea of diversity in quotas and that kind of thing, and to what extent... Because I think that's really interesting, and to what extent that is a moral responsibility of those who have the power to commission uh, arts. But that's just something I'll just throw out there. Um, so um, sorry, James did you want to come in on any of this well um, I, do, I
6: mean anything, the only thing about, about the BBC is I mean Kim's probably absolutely right uh, in, in that thing but I think the BBC is one of those things that even if it is ultimately achieved even if we get to that stage where it's not shouldn't be important anymore I have a sneaking suspicion they'll go on and on and on and on and on, and on. I, I, I don't think they'll, they'll ever get to a point when they'll go jolly good Sit back and just, just, uh, just get on with it. I, I, I just don't see us getting there, and I see it sort of escalating. Right, really, in, in not a positive way. What do you think the end is? I don't know. I never know what the BBC <laughs> are thinking at the best of times, but uh, I don't know what they're. I mean, I think I think their intentions are, uh, are good. The intentions are honourable, and the intentions are correct. It's just in the way. I, I, I'm not a great fan of quotas of anything. Um, uh, that's just my personal opinion Um, uh, I I, I just it's like fighting at the moment uh, the gay community Vanity Von Glo made a very very interesting point of we've got a lot we've kind of won the war a while back and um, people like Stonewall now are finding smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller smaller things um, uh, to pick on and it's creating more and more and more and more division. Um, and I'm, I'm yeah. not sure that's necessarily a good thing. That's a very interesting
1: point. Re- relating to the BBC, there, there was an article this week where they've, where they've, they've started a new uh, a campaign to combat heteronormativity within the, the BBC. And they're, they're going to get some people called straight allies to wear badges to identify that they are straight allies uh, who can be a comfort to to the poor... <laughs> LGBT uh, people. What I find interesting is that this strikes me as the vocal minority of LGBT people asking to be patronised. You know, to be honest, I, I don't know why they didn't ask other gay people, people with, you know, who might say, actually, don't patronise us, fuck off. You know. But there we go. Uh, we have different views on that. Clearly, um, let's go to John.
2: Um, so first of all, I will offer a slight apology. That's a cheap shot at the end, and obviously, uh, uh, I, I think um, obviously the, the the mindset of someone who listens to any and all complaints and applies them entirely indiscriminately uh, to their work and uh, doesn't apply any kind of scrutiny to them, uh, is also an unthinking position. Uh, I think what I'm broadly in favour of is, um, is, as I said, I don't see these as an either-or. I think you can uh, consider um, multiple points of view and multiple interpretations of your work and at the same time uh, have the freedom to express yourself in the way uh, you want to. Um, I guess in terms of uh, quotas, which often are um, sort of complained about, as sort like of blunt instruments. Well, they are kind of blunt instruments, but it's quite a large problem in lots of sectors of the art and um, the arts that there's such a um, uh, underrepresentation of, uh, of certain people, um, certain groups. And I think often that comes from the fact that arts networks are kind of inherently nepotistic um, because sort of a hobby that then evolves into a profession. Um, the networks are often very informal. Um, jobs are often informally given out. You might have a favorite actor who you like, oh yeah, I'll cast them straight away. You know, the same scrutiny that you might have in, um, in other structures don't necessarily always exist there. Um, and it's very easy then, therefore, for the sort of the current structure and the current makeup to just keep on perpetuating itself. So I think that even though, obviously, you will always be able to find examples of how uh, something has been misapplied or taken to viral or just seems absolutely ludicrous. And, and you know, I'm not I'm not debating that those examples exist. But I, I guess my question would be, um, how how else? What other what other tools are there? You know, it's just because something is imperfect is not an excuse to do nothing. Um, and I think often that. I, I, yeah that's it's all, i won 't I won't go any further than that really i 'll ask the question is what what other strategies uh, would people suggest because I think it 's all very well to say hey we don 't need to stop what 's there we just need more of everything right and I believe that as well but we don 't just get more of everything right that that has to happen we have to you know some people have to actually work to give platforms to people who don 't have platforms. Putting on a piece of work is making a decision not to put on another piece of work. There are a limited number of places um, to, to, you know, to, uh, uh, spots in the schedule or slots in the theatre. So how you make those decisions to, um, to give those slots out, that that is also something you need to think long and hard about. So yes, maybe quotas are a blunt instrument, but I actually think in, in the short term they're very, they're very useful to put people in the positions where they can create their own networks. And and um, and 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 continue, you know, and and, um, and allow that sort of natural diversifying to,
1: to happen. Thanks, John. Um, I, I, I do want to come back to Tamir, and then I'll go to Mo, if that's okay.
5: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the idea, picking up Kim's point there about um, diversity and casting. Uh, talk about theatre in particular. Um, there's, I mean, you've seen it in the last two, three years, really. Just going to the theatre, there is a lot more of what's described as colourblind casting. Um, it's it's asking the audience to do something um, slightly it um, uh, may be slightly difficult for them in some ways because um, it seems to be the theatre directors are deliberately picking people from a variety of different um, um, uh, ethnic minority backgrounds to to be in their play to sort of make a point about diversity to encourage new talents um, and then when they go on stage often they're presented as being colorblind, if you see what I mean. So the audience is expected to be colorblind whilst the director has been the exact opposite of that. Now again, the way to, the way to sort of, to get through this and the way to sort of um, bring something creative and interesting out of that um, is to be careful in who you cast and in what particular role, even if it is unusual. I don't know if anyone saw Translations, the wonderful Brian Freel play at the National Theatre um, this summer. Um, the, it's a play about um, how the British, uh, British in Ireland in the nineteenth century. It's a fantastic play, and it was a very good performance. And the main uh, character, who is a British army officer who falls in love with with an Irish girl, was played by a black actor called Adetumuma, Um Ada, um, and he was very good in that in that role. It was an unusual piece of casting, but it kind of worked because. He was the character that you were meant to, the British character that you were meant to sympathise with more. Casting um, a black actor in that role wasn't colourblind. It was trying to make you think about, well, maybe this person was also an outsider within his own community, and two outsiders are meeting together. I wonder also whether it was a sort of slight echo of Forest Whitaker's role in The Crying Game, where he plays a British, a black uh, British soldier in Northern Ireland in a current conflict. So there seemed to be. Something working there, some, doing something that was creative. So I think the idea of colourblind—you know, we don't see race, but well, we sort of do. Let's let's use creative ways to try and uh, incorporate different minorities in different ways, uh, different people um, into autistic communities. Thank
1: you very much. Um, and just if we quickly go to Mo, and then we'll go yeah. back out.
4: Um, So on this idea that identity politics is immoral because it divides us, it kind of um, focuses on what is different about us and it sort of essentialises us in some kind of way that's not to do with the content of our character, but the colour of our skin and so forth. Um, I have have a lot of sympathy for that view. I think, um, for instance, um, I don't know if anybody saw Dickensian on uh, Netflix. It was set in Dickensian times, and there was a couple of... um, sort of major characters within that that were black and that was absolutely fine because they did a really good job and it didn't really make me think, but were there black people it made me, made me think now you know, you know were there characters in Dickensian times that were black, um, I'm pretty sure if I'd been watching it 20 years ago I might not have even thought about that because I just got carried away by what a good performance they, they, they'd they made. Um, I think this idea of representation is a really interesting one because um, one of my students has just done a thesis on um, representation um, in Hollywood of how many uh, films are made for, uh, for with black people as, as kind of a total cast compared to white people as a total cast and the point is it's white people obviously um, and the reason being is that as a society black people are used to happen to watch um, white characters in, in, a, play, uh, in a, a film whereas you know white audiences aren't. Um, the problem with that is how, how, how do you um, what do you do? Do you do it on quarters so do we then do a kind of like um, quarter of how many uh, black people there are in Britain today, how many Asian people there are, how many Chinese people, white people, how many transgender people? Because if we did it on quarters, then probably transgender people wouldn't be very represented at all. Um, so I feel that there's something a little bit self-defeating about this kind of essentialising us. Um, James, I've got bad news for you, mate. So I think people are starting to hold um, actors responsible for the uh, characters they play. Yes, I um, think they are. Yes, yeah. they are. Um, I mean, look at, look at what... Uh, the, the issue with uh, Scarlett Johansson, who is not uh, transgender, and uh, she pulled out of playing that part. I mean, the thing is, these are actors, okay? We're suspending our disbelief. We're marvelling in our talent. Some people would say that art is in the perfection. It's not in the, the kind of absolute representation of reality, because that would just be a photograph or, you know, a reality itself. You know, art is somehow not the same as real life. Um, And also, let's be practical, how do you show um, the story of a transgender person with one actor? You, you know, you'd have to would to go through yes. the, the, the transition while, while they're making the film wouldn't they, if they were going to be really representative so um, I, I feel like the identity politics thing is a good one, I think it's making us more aware of sensitivities and perhaps actually making us more sensitive um, to what divides us when actually the fact art and culture are supposed to be something that we're supposed to enjoy and they're supposed to bring us together
1: Thank you very much um,
4: so we're going to go out to the audience again in the moment sorry.
1: of trying to get... Could I just very, very quickly yes.
6: address your comment? Uh, you're absolutely right. If, if I was living in, a, let's say, under Nazi occupation... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but, 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 then, but then I think your whole life and your whole... Everything you do becomes a moral responsibility. So I totally accept what you're saying when, when you made that point. Thank you.
1: So if we could just go to this gentleman here. Uh, is, who's got the mic? Oh, yes, hello. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Oh, no, sorry. I'll come to you next. I'll
0: come to you next. Um. Thanks. Um, It was just on... You mentioned, uh, Andrew, in your uh, introducing Marks, uh, um, about uh, Killing Eve. And I kind of tried to sit down and watch Killing Eve. And I got halfway through episode one and turned off because it's not true to the story of a serial killing female psychopath it's clunky, it's instrumental because it's trying to subvert patriarchal uh, kind of uh, values. So it becomes a cliche in and of itself. It doesn't work. So my question is, it's kind of the role of the muse in, in this because everybody's talked about art and the artist. What of the muse? Surely the, the artist's responsibility is to their art, to, to the muse. Bad people generally speaking, make great art. Good people make shit art.
10: <laughs>
0: Thank you. Uh,
1: I'm, sort of, I'm sort of reminded of something Christopher Hitchens said about Roald Dahl when he was accused of being an anti-Semite, and Christopher Hitchens said, well, of course he was, and I'm glad he was, because that's why he was able to produce... He was so twisted and perverted, and he was able to produce these, these works. It's interesting. Uh, let's go down here, and then I'll, I'll come right to the back afterwards.
7: Okay, I had a question. Uh, what does the panel think about this idea that the kind of diversity agenda and representation agenda encourages people of colour to have racist attitudes towards white people because it encourages people of colour to see white people as racist by default unless they are re-socialised in the form of stories that show people of colour in a positive light. Thank you. Um I'll go to this lady here
1: and then...
3: Hi. Um, I kind of noticed there seems to be a big worry about people maybe so of color or women or any sort of minority who or well women aren't a minority but anyone who has been a victim of society that they're being oversensitive and i kind of feel like that's just that's a bit oversensitive like all of these people are maybe being a little bit oversensitive at the moment because they've been so oppressed and so attacked for so long and finally they have a chance to actually stand up for themselves so maybe we can just allow them to be a little bit sensitive for a bit
1: OK, uh, and can we go... T- if we go right to the back there, if that's OK. Yeah, um, yep.
2: Thanks. Hi, this was briefly touched upon on a question someone asked, but um, separation of art and artist, I think, is really crucial to things like the Rudyard Kipling poem, because I personally, I listen to a lot of music and watch a lot of films with ideas that I disagree with, but that doesn't stop them being good. So if we... I was wondering if the panel could discuss whether to separate art and artist...
1: Yes, thank you very much. And then uh, if you just go along a couple of spaces... Is that right? Thank you. Hi. Um, I was wondering, because the arts tend to be quite a liberal place, and the focus on diversity and the artist's responsibility to encourage diversity uh, I completely agree with. But if it's a purely liberal um, morality being encouraged, then what it doesn't encourage is diversity in opinion and political diversity, which might uh, mean more divide and that the arts are moving to a purely liberal language. And I don't think that serves the many. Uh, I was wondering what you would say about that. Uh, thank you. Uh, and then the gentleman with the red. Um...
7: One of the problems with um, the idea of moral responsibility is it suggests that we know what morality is. And morality actually changes over time. So Kipling is a good example of this because he wouldn't have thought he was being immoral. Uh, We judge him by standards of our own time. And the standards of our own time will probably be judged quite differently by people in a 100 years' time. So in a way, isn't the responsibility of the artist to question what morality is and in fact to question res- what responsibility is.
1: Thank you very much, thanks. Um, what we'll do is come back to the panel. I'm gonna go out to you guys one more time. So, um, uh, if we just come back here. So, Kim, would you like to start?
3: Sure, um, I'll start with link because he keeps coming up. Um, I. I think that Kipling is a great writer. Um, I don't think that Kipling is untalented. Definitely, don't think that Kipling should be banned. I think you can separate art from the artist, but equally, not everyone can. And so, for me personally, I don't love Kipling because of the other things he stood for. I don't. I can't enjoy the White Man's Burden. But that's me as an individual coming from my life experience. And it's totally okay for other people to not feel that way and to thoroughly enjoy the work of Kipling. Um, but. I think that's it, in terms of Kipling. Um, And that not everyone of his time agreed with his views, even if they were more commonplace than they are now. Um, And that's all I have to say on the Kipling thing.
1: So out of interest, Kim, so how do you feel about the people who covered the the Kipling poem up, and would you support, therefore, that action, just out of interest?
3: Um, I actually agree with you that it's not necessarily the perfect action, Um, presuming that their aim was to highlight um, the lack of representation of other poets and of other writers and writers of colour, then I don't necessarily think that was the best way to get the message across. Um, because also, if you're thinking about how it's going to be reported, it's going to be reported as you know, crazy left wing activists at the University of Manchester papered over if, um, and yeah, and are calling him a racist. So I think if their aim yeah. was to say. Which did happen. <laughs> yeah, it did happen. They fell straight into it. Um, but it is difficult when people who are trying to plan protests thinking about how they get reported. Um, Black Lives Matter have it as well, where their overall aim of one protest was to highlight climate change and how it disproportionately impacts people in um, developing countries. But that didn't come across in the way it was reported, and most people didn't know that that was the aim. They just thought it was um, some young people who just wanted to disrupt people's holidays. Um, So I think there is a question about when you're protesting for representation, thinking about the best way to do that, to get your message across. A strategy. Yeah, Yeah. and that wasn't necessarily there for that. Um, and I'd have to speak to them and ask them. Did you really? Was it really about representation, or do you just think it's racist? Because I, I can't speak for them. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, diver- oh, killing me I love, by the way. Um, but that's just me. But you're totally entitled to your it as well. But I'll just leave that to someone else. I, okay. I haven't seen it though. I think. Um, it's really excellent. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, diversity. Jennifer? Written by a
5: man as well, by the way. Luke Jennings wrote the books, and then it's been adapted. So, it, it, there are lots of, you know. It, yeah, somebody was saying... Sorry, there the was a gentleman who was saying that. Um, it's sort of feminist clichés, but I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I like it as well. Was the
1: character originally uh, female? Yes. Yeah, OK.
6: I haven't seen Killing Eve either. either. Uh, <laughs> um,
3: <laughs>
9: um,
6: Kim, you had another I point to make.
1: Seen. <laughs> <laughs> you
9: really
3: should. It's excellent. Box set on our um, Final point. Um, diversity, gender-making people more racist. Um... I, once again, can only speak for myself and the work that we do um, at the Renemy Trust, but for us, representation is about equal opportunity. It's actually about freedom, which is what a lot of ethnic minorities just don't have at the moment, the freedom to um, have equal access to make work and create it and have it shown, the network issue that you were talking about earlier. So I really don't think it's about um, trying to make all white people, um, to make ethnic minorities Racists against white people. I really don't think that that's the aim. We have racism in our society, and people don't always like to hear it, but we really do. There's a lot of stats on it, Um, and people talking about that and its existence um, isn't because they hate white people. It's just because that's our reality. Um, And the diversity agenda is just trying to correct imbalances, and that's all that's about.
1: Yeah, I think, um, just to add to something that you said, actually, I think, because there's something implicit in what you said about, in these sorts of policies about representation, there is this implicit suggestion that that there is a responsibility to socialise the public, and I suppose the problem with that is, and something we haven't really discussed, is it does sort of blindly accept the concept of media effects theory, which is the theory that uh, mass media consumption has a kind of trickle-down effect, and therefore the general public modify their behaviour on the popular culture that they uh, consume. Of course, we've had six decades of research on that, and it's not true. Uh, it's been utterly debunked. And, and they've never found... so. What's strange to me about all of this is that we are just accepting something which we know is not the case. And that's something which maybe people might want to respond to, but the idea of this need for socialisation is that really... And certainly, is it the artist's role to socialise? Anyway, I'm just putting it out there. Um, We'll come to Mo now, and then we'll... Well,
4: yeah, I mean, this idea of socialising the public, I talked about it a little bit this morning, so I apologise if anybody who's in my session this morning. I think the artist, certainly... In the t- I work in two sectors. I work in the arts and I work in academia. You couldn't hope for two more lefty-liberal uh, sectors. And um, uh, th- there's a great there's a great kind of um, argument within the arts that we need to go and kind of um, heal communities. We, we need to teach um, civic duty, especially since Brexit. There's been an awful lot of conversation uh, conversations with the arts sector about we need to go back out into these communities and and teach people about uh, notions of civic uh, duty and uh, make sure they don't vote the wrong way in the future. Um, In fact, I I went to a library in County Durham um, to assess their arts kind of program, and they said to me, um, you haven't come to tell us we voted the wrong way, have you? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, we all voted Brexit round here. And I said, well, why do you think I would tell you? She said, because that's all we ever hear from the art sector is that we voted the wrong way and we need a second referendum. Uh, so let's not trust artists uh, to represent us. If 96% of the uh, art sector voted Remain and the country's 50-50, then artists aren't necessarily representative of us. Um, identity politics. Ben Copley's been talking about this a little bit um, today. Um, who's in and who's out? Who, who are the sensitivities? Who are the people that we say should um, have a moment to feel sensitive? Uh, you know, and I, I'm not in, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but there are certain groups that are in, and they're not always just minorities, like you say, uh, women as well. Um, I wrote a book, and it got, sensitive, it got read for sensitivity. It was set in South Africa before, during, and after apartheid. I mean, it was just a recipe for disaster. And um, I, uh, I got torn to, torn to bits. Um, one of my black characters cheated on his wife, and so I'd represented all black... Um, there was 20 black ca- characters in my book who hadn't cheated on their wives. Um, one of my gay characters dressed very smartly, and um, I, I was kind of told to take that out as well. Um, but when I, when I pressed... I mean, you know, well... Um, <laughs> But, wait, wait, but as I pressed send on it to get it to set, I thought, oh, I'll read it one more time, just check. I have been sensitive. And to my horror, I realised that every single Afrikaner character in my book was, was um, poorly portrayed. I'd kind of built on some negative stereotypes of Afrikaners. The sensitivity readers didn't pick up on that at all. Not one.
1: Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Samir, did you want to?
5: Yes. I mean, I went to an exhibition last year which was in Ditchling. Um, in Sussex, which was um, dedicated to the artist Eric Gill, who you may well uh, know, have heard of. He's an incredibly talented um, uh, sculptor and also font designer. Gill sans font you will all know and have used at some point. Um, He was also someone who uh, abused his own children. So The museum has a responsibility to protect and promote the art of Eric Gill. Since Fiona McCarthy's biography in 1989, we know that um, he did abuse his children. Um, And some of his works are um, extremely disturbing, Um, some of the sketches on display within the the museum. And what to do? I think they did it very well, actually. Um, They... Presented um, a video at the start, which explained the context for people who didn't know that this is who Eric Gill was, and these are some of the issues surrounding it. And they gave sort of appropriate numbers for people who had suffered sort of from from child abuse. They also um, there were some paint, there were some um, sketches of his daughter um, uh, nude. To look at them with any level of neutrality, I think is is very very hard, and it's, it, it and um, so what they've done is, and also it may well have been particularly. I don't want to use the word offensive, but it would have been disturbing to a lot of people. So what they did was they put them on display, but they simply put them behind the curtain, and they put a sign there saying, "If you want to look at these images, you can go behind it and you can look at them." Now I thought that was a sort of good balance of sort of informing people that this is very sensitive material, but if we want to understand this artist, who you know is uh, you know engraved. Uh, he's everywhere. You know, he's in Westminster Cathedral doing... um, uh, His his sculptures are on Westminster Cathedral. They're on the front of the BBC aerial. You know, as I said, they're in the fonts that we use. So he's someone who we can't ignore, and he is in many ways a wonderful artist, but a very, very troubling person. So, you know, that was a good way, I think, of um, of dealing with it. It's another exhibition, this... um, uh, this summer, which was the Picasso exhibition, which was paintings of um, um, his mistress, uh, Marie Therese Volta, which was at the um, uh, Tate. Uh, it was an extraordinary exhibition, painting after painting, beautiful painting after beautiful painting of Picasso painting his mistress, either crying or sleeping. Um, individually, some of the paintings expressed great sort of empathy and sympathy for the person he was painting, but collectively, by the end, you got a kind of shudder, really, because you realise that this person, this great artist, had been sort of fixing um, his mistress in these portrayals, and and, and it did did make you feel uncomfortable. Um, There wasn't anything that could have pushed you to do that, but somehow putting them all together made me reassess the artist. That doesn't mean that Picasso was trying to tell me something, or Picasso was trying to impart a view to me. It's just that... um, We have to, in some way, to understand the complexity of the piece of work and its effect on us. We do sometimes have to take account of the historical context in which it was created.
1: Thank you. Uh, James, did you want to add
8: something?
6: Well, I'd just like to say I agree entirely with this gentleman there in the yellow talking about um, artists, actually good art is is, is usually created by monsters. I mean, if you only have to look at, uh, you know, read the life of Bacon or uh, people people as such and, and, and I think one of the reasons is, is because is, is bad more interesting <laughs> than good I mean you, you kind of look at it when you turn on the news why don't we hear you know um, man helps old lady across the street uh, 25 times why because it's not really interesting is it but much more interesting to hear about the horrific crash which killed you know 25 people which tends to be a sort of relentlessly negative um, obsession and perhaps an unhealthy obsession with with the dark side of things, and and, and that's possibly why uh, you know really good art always sort of comes from a quite a bad dark place. Yeah, it makes sense.
1: That's why everyone likes the Inferno out of Divine Comedy, and not the other two bits. Um, so, um, John, did you want to yeah. come in? So uh, I
2: mean, it's interesting because um, I I would say the the, the question about Killing Eve, about whether or not it was sort of cliched in terms of its uh, approach. And then, I do have to disagree with you the end of the question, bad people make good art, good people make bad art. I mean, that's, that's a bit of a cliché. Uh, <laughs> and does syllogism work, you know, just because uh, some artists are bad. It doesn't follow that all artists are bad. Some bad people are artists. Not all artists are bad. Um, and, and often, I think in TV, what you've obviously got is you've got a lot of compromises. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, as soon as you get in there, you've got to negotiate with a director who might have a completely different vision, with a producer who might have a completely different um, vision. You've got all these different steps where the art can be um, uh, c- corrupted. I don't mean it in a, in a moral sense, but I mean in, a, in you know, it can move away from your vision. And that's a really difficult thing to negotiate. And I can see that there might be a correlation between people who are so bloody-minded that they won't say no at any point and get into a position where they are making very uncompromised art. But I don't think that's the only way of making uncompromising art. I think there are other ways as well. I think there are very nice people uh, and very good people who and, – and, and, um, and those two things aren't necessarily the same thing but, – um, but very good people who also make great art and there's um, and a lot of rubbish bad people as well. So um, I just really want to jump on a couple of other things. Um, in terms of media effects theory, um, Andrew, I'm sorry I haven't done the requisite reading for this panel, but um, I, I was at the BBC um, a while ago because I'm a big shot, and um, <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> I remember having a conversation with a producer where she said every time we show a suicide in a soap opera, the suicide film is spiked. Now, those storylines are probably broadly not in favour of suicide, right? They're probably sort of, and they're probably raising awareness. They're probably doing all those things, right? Now, that's a really um, that's a really tough question to grapple with. Is the the benefit of doing a story that deals with something that could really help a lot of people is that outweighed by the unintended consequences of, of portraying something? And I'm not saying that it. That, that a perfectly uh, healthy person is uh, perfect mental health is sitting in front of the TV going, well, I'm having a great day and Phil Mitchell tops himself and they're
5: like, well, that's it. me uh, <laughs> <laughs> a bridge, right? I'm not saying that. Has <laughs> Phil Mitchell Phil, Phil topped himself? I, I haven't know. seen these uh, standards uh, in a while. Oh, not <laughs> more spoilers. All <laughs> <laughs> no, right, No more spoilers. <laughs> 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 Although, I'm going to say on the topic of uh, now here in the bodyguard,
2: right? I'm really sorry, I am going to spoil this. Now... I, I, I mean, I, I sort of cocked it at the time, I was like, oh, I'm not, not quite sure about this, but the bigger thing that was a problem for me, quite frankly, was that she, uh, t- sorry guys, spoiler alert, she turns out to be the bomb maker, yet they sent her as the suicide bomber, which is really short-term <laughs> thinking about <behalf> her
1: terrorist.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Surely
11: you send the husband, she can't make bombs, right? <laughs>
1: okay, so tip She's there for ISIS. Hungry. Thanks, John. Um, okay, what I want to do though, because we are running out of time, I just want to get a couple of final thoughts from you guys and then really, really brief from the panel if that's okay. So, uh, yes?
11: Hi. so just on the topic of moral responsibility of the artist, I personally think that you can go about art in so many different ways for so many different purposes, but when it comes to morality, it's on you whether you decide to portray your own ideas or just cause people to think about what you're doing. So Plato obviously created boundless like literature, but rarely shows his own personal philosophical views, but he causes you to ask questions. Bear in mind, though, that Plato said that we should ban art because it takes us miles away from reality, but all of his work is art. But I personally think that it's not the artist's responsibility. Every individual is responsible for their own feelings, and you cannot blame your actions on the artist. It's what you take away from it. And that is the purpose of creating it.
1: Thank you very much. Very, very interesting as, as well is the assumption that we have to guard against that representation through art means that the artist endorses that, that point. I mean, obviously, a, a good example would be Lars von Trier, who often takes as a premise for his films I'm going to take something I find indefensible and defend it as though it's great. Such as Antichrist, which is basically a defence of misogyny. You know, it's very interesting. Anyway, um, we'll come down here next.
4: Yeah.
12: First of all, a quick comment about the numbers of people, whether you're male, female, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, When you go out to the theatre uh, these days, very often you get a questionnaire sent to you. They don't ask you the quality of the acting or the designs. <laughs> they ask you, was it good value for money? What racial thing are you are you male or female, and now that's it altered because they leave that that's much more open and then they ask you how old you are, but they don't actually ask you anything about the actual thing but my comment was um, that the problem is if you think too hard about satisfying everybody it, society's almost imposing um, some sort of censorship on you and and that you know I, I think that, that that's just you have to Not really. I mean, you don't want to offend people, but you don't really want to just give in to every small group who's uh, uh, saying that. And but you can't. I mean, think of the poor people who were working under censorship. I mean, uh, years ago at the Aldwych, they had some uh, theatres from all over Europe, and they had simultaneous translation. And there was somebody, a company from Eastern Europe, and they didn't dare say how awful. communism was and so they had they were the hands of these people who were doing all these things this hands group and then they got replaced by the hat which was sort of you know there's always nazism you know you can't you have to be with the people if you've got censorship you can always get around it but i think that one shouldn't be too much every age Every age you're writing, you're living in the environment, you're writing in your age, for your age. And I think if you start trying to shift outside that a bit too much, it can come close to censorship.
1: Thank you very much. Um, If we go down here.
7: I'd like to question the opposition of um, freedom and responsibility, because I think it's only when you're genuinely free that you're genuinely responsible for the choices that you're making. So as an artist, it's incredibly hard to make something even shitty, let alone good. So if you are outsourcing responsibility for artistic choices to somewhere else, no matter how well-intentioned, that piece of art will be compromised and insincere. And your immoral responsibility as an artist is to follow your muse and produce something that is sincere and heartfelt and then let that be judged on the quality of your inspiration.
0: Right. Um, <clears throat> I'm really shocked because I-, I thought Nadia won Bake Off. Um, I, I, I didn't know she's big she, dumb she, she, <laughs> yeah, so Her career has progressed somewhat. Um, yeah, um, I, I, um, I, I'm. I, I think art You know, the best music and the best, uh, best authors tend to lose themselves in their own art and really explore their own news and, and, and follow their own thinking, and, and, and I'm worried that people, if people are constantly looking up and thinking, what will the focus group say, or how, is, how will this be perceived by an audience, if you're constantly second-guessing who your audience is, but actually your audience is being prejudged by the people who are commissioning you to be a certain audience, it just becomes, whole, the whole thing becomes corporatized. and it, it's, you're almost like writing for a focus group, and that's the worst way to produce art, products, in, in fact, anything
7: in life.
1: Great, thank you. And to that gentleman there?
7: Um, is it Mur? Yeah. In your uh, opening statement, you um, kind of concluded with the idea that ultimately people are affected by um, the art in its entirety rather than uh, individual portrayals within it. Um, but given the like, uh, formative power of like language and stuff, um, so like, even as recently as the Trump election, some people are saying that his use of repetition was incredibly important in convincing people of his point of view... Um, so therefore, particularly in the linguistic arts, the theatre, um, music that is sung, um, and television and film, is it not true to say that because they utilise language, they are inherently affecting the audience? Because language affects the way we think. It is how we understand the world.
9: Thank you, Thank you for that. Oh, yes, sure. <laughs> um... If if the artist has moral responsibility, I would have thought that's the end of stand-up comedy, Um, because um, most stand-up comedians on stage are not moral. That's why they're funny, Um, (laughs) which which means that um, we're going to be in quite a humorous society. Um, If you've ever seen clips of people walking around in North Korea, you'll know that wouldn't be much fun. So I think we've got to protect uh, this, this idea of the artist can do whatever they like, because the public have got the intelligence to judge for themselves whether it's any good um, and, and we'll, be in a very, we'll be in a very miserable state I think and I, I like to laugh so.
1: <laughs> Thank you Okay great, what I'm going to do is we've only got a few minutes so I'm going to come back to the panel Can I, just, I really want to thank everyone because I think you've all been absolutely wonderful I'm going to come back and we'll have the final um, just summing up just to, just to main, address by all means anything you've heard anything that you wanted we'll just go along so we'll start with john and
2: sure. yeah really, really quick um, so interesting so outsourcing look um i'm i'm really all for i'm i'm so i'm really against banning things i don't like it i don't like that at all i'm inherent i just i hate that i think uh freedom is incredibly important i also really like comedy um and i think that that actually uh Comedians should be able to, artists should be able to push things and provoke and do these things. What I'm in favour of is um, not a knee-jerk reaction towards being exposed to other points of view. Because I think when you talk about the muse, we talk about it like it's a fixed position. Do you know what I mean? Like, So um, your muse never changes your 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 drive towards artistic endeavours never changes with what you learn or how you grow or how you check but that's obviously everybody of or nearly everybody of work shows a progression over time, maybe a change of views, in some cases a really radical one. Um, so just being exposed to other viewpoints but then still allowing the artist the autonomy to make that decision. That is um, that is my position. Um, I think that when you try and formalise that in institutions, lots of problems come about. We've talked about some of them here. Um, Formalising is a sort of clumsy process, it's, it, it, yes, it, obviously it can have unintended consequences, it can have people who aren't very good at their jobs, who miss out the fact that um, the African characters are all offensive and, and, and some of them aren't. Um, you can also have there's other negative um, <laughs> questions, you know, um, I, I completely agree about the um, viewpoint diversity, you know, merely sort of saying we need people who look different, um, and not accounting for the fact that some of those people might disagree with you. And I think at its laziest, and I'm not saying this is how it is across the board, but at its laziest, the sort of quest towards diversity is actually a quest for people who look different to us but who think the same things. And that's, that's really dangerous as well. You have to accept the fact that artists are going to have a uh, plurality of views. Um, uh, and, and, um, and, and not to sort of push people into boxes or try and make them create the sort of work that you think they should be creating. Um, I think, you know, when I say we should listen to diverse voices, I think we should listen to conservatives as well. I'm not saying sort of like um, uh, you should only listen to people who are in favour. I think you should, I mean, Andrew and I do not agree on a lot of things. But we, most we, things. We, most things. <laughs> <agree? laughs> I think more things now than he realised in the beginning of this session. <laughs> <laughs> but we're still friends, we still talk about all those things. And I think um, <coughs> that's really important. Um, polyphony. Um, is, is for me what theatre is about, but I would say it's also about collaboration. It's also about, um, you know, every you know, most writers have an editor. Um, we all kind of um, work together to try and create. So I think obviously there's the individual voice, but that is affected by so many things. And I think to sort of say that no, it exists in isolation as a fixed point is, is John. I'm going to
3: have to move. Not. On. I'm going <laughs> to move. <on laughs> there, <can. Nice. laughs> Um, just quickly, um, with the musician, also with comedy, um, I think we need to be careful about overstating the threat to free speech in the UK. Um, comedians can say whatever they like. I don't have to necessarily find it funny, and that's okay. You may get criticism for what you say, and that's okay too. I think when we start moving towards, oh, I was, um, I did my set, and lots of people found it offensive, and they complained on Twitter, and they wrote an op-ed in the Guardian about it. Those people are also entitled to their opinion and to their free they're to share that freely, and that's what free speech is. So I think we're not in North Korea, we're not under the threat of becoming North Korea, um, and I think it's good to reflect on that. Um, in terms of audiences and what they measure and what they don't, when you go to see a play, um, a lot of those forms are just to measure who is coming to the play, um, and some of that will be ethnicity, and I think that's important to do, but if there was a majority white audience, it wouldn't stop a play like that being commissioned again, but they might consider commissioning also um, a play that had different characters or a different storyline. And I don't see that as an inherently bad thing.
1: Thanks, Kim. Um, Mo? Um,
4: You know, um, we're not living in North Korea, no. But we we are censoring ourselves more and more and we are asking for uh, certain ideas to be censored and we have actually criminalised somebody for making a joke. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to look at Andrew's Twitter feed sometimes. He just interviewed um, Mark Meechan, is it? Mark Meechan. He was sent to jail for um, a a joke. Fine, he wasn't sent to jail. He was threatened with imprisonment, wasn't he? It became possible because he made a joke which involved um, his girlfriend's dog who happened to be a pug making a Nazi salute. And... um, um, what the judge said in that rule, and I should let you tell this because you know it better, actually, is that um, you can't separate the context from... The
1: context isn't relevant. The
4: context isn't it's, relevant. It's whether people
1: find it offensive. It's
4: whether or not people find it offensive. So, actually, I think we are... Um, finding that our freedom um, is being more and more and more curtailed. It's not done in the language of censorship. It's done in the language of moral responsibility, which I think is kind of like at the heart of this question. We're asking people to take moral decisions uh, that, uh, in order to kind of sort of censor them or make them think about the moral consequences of what their art can do. Um, and this comes back to that question of can we separate the art from the artists themselves. I think there's a relationship between the two. But um, we can't ask the artists to take our our moral decisions for us, and we can't ask them to be responsible for us. We've already heard um, that we don't even agree what morality is, that morality changes over time. Um, Somebody over there said, Freedom comes from responsibility, or responsibility comes from freedom. We all disagree. We can't even place the kernel of where uh, the moral decision lies. Is it in the consequences? Is it because somebody had a terrible thought? Is it in the res- uh, sorry? Is it in the intention? Somebody had a bad thought. Is it in the consequence? Is it in the act itself? And that's why, in a court of law, um, judges try and sort of weigh all of those things up: whether or not somebody intended to kill somebody, whether or not they actually killed somebody, um, and all those things. And um, that that sort of brings me back to my point is that we, we have to take responsibility for our own moral decisions because at the end of the day we are responsible for them. We can't outsource that morality anywhere else um, and um, quite often when we have these arguments it's not about my moral responsibility or moral, we're all very moral responsible people in here isn't it? It's not us lot it's those, those stupid people out there that we don't quite trust um, it's never
5: us.
11: Thanks Mo um,
5: um, this is a point which is both um, pertinent to the discussion um, and a plug. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I've got a novel coming out next year, All Good bookshops. Um, it has British Muslims as the main characters. Um, and just in my experience of talking to editors this year and various people, um, the impression I get from some people in the audience, they seem to think that um, uh, barriers have been thrown open and that it's incredibly easy for... Um, Um, religious or ethnic minorities to get anything published these days because it's all diversity, diversity, diversity. Well, I can tell you in my experience it's not uh, that easy at all, really. Um, um, Aside from the quality of the book, which is obviously um, people have opinions on, um, there are extra pressures and there are extra sort of um, aesthetic questions that both publishers and writers ask themselves if they're writing about communities which are almost never written about from the inside, as it were. Um, and I think that we should be quite careful when we have, for example, a literary culture where I think there are almost no British Muslim novelists. Yet British Muslims are on the front pages all the time. Now, why is that the case? Um, anyway, um, I hope... My last point is really that I hope that um, works of art that are ultimately wiser than their creators, and that's what I hope for my book as well. Thank you
6: very much. And James? Uh, I'd just very quickly like to say I wish we would stop pandering to the pap- perpetually offended. They're a massive group, and just because one or two people, uh, we suddenly take it it into account. And um, I just, there'll be people who are offended regardless, wherever you go. And perhaps it's time to say, uh, you know, put up or shut up. Thank you. (laughs)